Welcome to The Real Spotlight, a podcast dedicated to all things films and television. For today's episode, I will be delving deep into the mind of Christopher Nolan and talk about his newest film, Oppenheimer. I will have help talking all things Nolan. My special guest runs one of my favorite accounts on Instagram called Pretentious Film Club, where he posts awesome 60-second movie reviews that are super concise. He also recently started a podcast in which he co-hosts called That One Inch Barrier. Let me welcome to The Real Spotlight, Kieran. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I knew I was gonna I was gonna do a special Nolan episode dedicated to Oppenheimer, and I had two people that I knew like was gonna ask, and you were one of them. And happy you said yes. Oh no, I'm flattered. It's um, you know, giving me a bit of a, a bit of an ego boost to start. So that's good. Um, <laughs> and yeah, as far as directors go, there's few that I uh, enjoy talking about as much as Nolan. So yeah, really excited for this. Yeah, so you are officially the farthest guest in terms of time difference I've had on the show with 17 hours. So right now, uh, actually, where do you live in Australia? Uh, so I live in a city called Brisbane, uh, which is in the state of Queensland um, on the on the east coast of Australia. So most people would know Melbourne and, and Sydney. Um, Brisbane is is north of those. So is that um, so north- a bit of a smaller city? Northeast? Uh, not quite northeast, because um, that's when you get into the real uh, sort of real outback of of, okay. of Australia. Um, so it's kind of more cent- central. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you sort of pick, you know, right in the middle of the eastern seaboard of Australia, that's about where where Brisbane is. Uh, but usually, like, what I do about Australia, let me just start really quick. It's funny because when I growing up, the only thing I knew about Australia, and this sounds really stupid and stereotypical do you know what i'm gonna say i feel like it's either gonna be like crocodile dundee or kangaroo <laughs> jack or something like that it's crocodile dundee. <laughs> <laughs> and i saw that movie when i was i don't know maybe eight nine years old and the, i think was the late 80s and the, the, the movie came out in 86 or 87 but everybody knows the line of that's not a knife this is a knife and paul hogan and people don't realize that he actually wrote the movie <laughs> And it was a story by him. So that was my uh, uh, introduction into Australian acting actors. And then I kind of like, I I knew about Nicole Kidman, but I never knew she was Australian. No, I thought she was British. Yeah, a lot of people don't. I mean, Hugh Jackman, Eric Banner, Kate Blanchett, uh, Pierce, Kate Blanchett. We've produced some pretty good actors over the years, but a lot of people don't realize they're Australian. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my introduction to Australia. And then in the late 90s, I started watching um, Steve Irwin. Yeah, And he, I mean, I love Steve and oh, we miss him. For my family, we used to watch him all the time. What was your first taste of American cinema? Do you remember like who was the f- first movie you saw? You're like, oh, this is from America? Yeah, that's a tough one because I mean... I often I often cite David Fincher as being, I guess, my introduction to 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 looking at films as films mm. rather than movies. If you want to kind of make that differentiation, yeah. Um, you know, my older brother showed me The Game and Seven when I was probably in sort of my very early teens, start of high school, um, and that just really opened my eyes to like, wow, films are they're not just these things that you watch for entertainment; like they can be really really gripping and engaging and clever um and i mean i've fallen in love with fincher since i love everything he does so he was a big one for me to kind of put films on on the map um but i don't know if there was a a moment where i sort of yeah looked at 
I guess, American cinema, um, because it's even, you know, growing up in the UK and then moving to Australia, it's so much of of what we're exposed to. You know, everything in the cinema is always American productions. That that uh, Crocodile Dundee one was the the surprise question I was going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I I was I was expecting Crocodile Dundee to come yeah. up and and, and I, I didn't want to sound like a, oh I'm making fun, but it's just truth. I mean that's no, how hundred percent. Um, and it was so popular. Funny. I mean, it was that movie was so popular in, here in the states. It's funny you brought up um, Steve Owen though, because I've mentioned this on my like on my stories and stuff a few times. So I've done Q and As and talks. I guess a bit more about myself. I actually worked. For a couple of years at Australia Zoo, which was Steve Owen Zoo. Well, you did. Yeah. So I, wow. I I worked in the video department there. I worked with like Terry and the kids and stuff, um, which was pretty awesome. But like I grew up literally 10 minutes away from the wow. zoo. So it's it's so funny hearing people talk about Steve Owen as like this larger than life figure, which he definitely was, but for me it's like they were just the, the you know the family who owned the zoo down the road so did you i mean i think he passed away what 2006 yeah yeah so i was only quite young when that happened but so you man, started over there afterwards yeah so i mean he already, I, he already had passed I, away yeah yeah okay. so but i so i never met steve but i worked yeah worked with um with robert who is just he's just steve reincarnated like he's, yes he's unbelievable I, yeah let me start you with the standard questions for the listener who may not know your story. Uh, this question is a two-parter. How did your love for film begin and when did you realize you wanted to get in front of a camera and record yourself doing movie reviews? My love of film began probably when I was around about 13, 14. Um, my older brother, who's not a big movie person, but a lot more cultured than, than I was in a few years ahead of me, um, sort of started introducing me to some of his favorite films. So I was watching things like David Fincher, you know, The Game and Seven and Fight Club and things like that. Um, I think he also showed me Tombstone as well, which is one of his favorite films, which is a little <laughs> bit left field because um, he just loved, he's a big Val Kilmer fan, my brother. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, really, you know, got me into that. And I guess sort of there, I from there, I started my own journey. Um, when I was about 15 or 16, I watched the Nicholas Winding Refn film Drive for the first time, which mm. anyone who follows my account knows I absolutely yeah. adore that film. Um, and that just really opened my eyes to to the artistry of, of filmmaking and how beautiful films could be. And um, yeah, just absolutely fell in love with it and started seeking out, I guess, more, uh, more left field indie foreign films and things like that. In terms of the reviews and the account, that all started in 2020 with COVID. Um, when the pandemic hit, I was working at a, a tourist destination um, and COVID meant no no tourists. Yeah. Um, so I got stood down from my job for about six months, just unemployed, nothing to do, couldn't go anywhere because the whole world was closed. Um, and I thought, you know, people have always, you know, friends and family have always come to me asking me what I thought about a movie or asking me for movie recommendations. So I thought, you know, I've got some spare time. Why not share those opinions with everyone? Um, and in terms of getting in front of the camera, I just thought, you know, so many people do written reviews. I know how to use a camera. I'm confident in front of the camera. And it could try and be a bit of a, a point of difference for me. Um, you know, to, to do those really short 60 second reviews, which was 
actually born out of at the time instagram didn't allow you to do videos that were longer than 60 seconds yeah um so i was kind of forced into that short format but it ended up working out really well and kind of made it into my my niche i think the vast majority of people that i've known that i've gotten to know on instagram started their account when covid started i mean i started yeah. january of 2020 so it yeah, was like I started in May. So it's yeah, around the same time. But I wish I did wish I had your confidence of getting in front of the camera and just talking. But like I could do this, but like I don't know if I could like get on live and, and start doing reviews like that. But I do love your reviews. I oh, thank and, you. Uh, I don't know how much of it is confidence and how much of it is ego and just me loving the sound of my own voice and seeing my face <laughs> on the internet. But I mean, people seem to enjoy it. Um, you know, and I I love it and I think, yeah, it just helps the reviews stand out a little bit because as yeah. great as the community is, we're all trying to, we're all trying to get up there. And you're one of the, you're one of the few that do it. We had a casual moviegoer, Ankit. He used to do the, the 60 yes. second reviews yeah. and then he kind of retired from Instagram. So we miss you, Ankit. Uh, but it was you and him that were the only ones that were doing that video uh, review. So I think you're the only one now that I follow that that does the the on camera review. So I wanted to ask about the your podcast that you co-host with Nick, right? Nick Flix. Yeah, so I host that one with Nick uh, from Nick's Flix Fix, which Fix, is mouthful. Yes. yes. Um, and Josh from Film Notions, who are a couple of other reviewers based here in Brisbane. Actually, you know what? Let me correct myself because he also does video reviews. So I'm sorry, Nick, I forgot about you. <laughs> You're also great. I actually sent him a message like last week. I'm like, dude, when do you sleep? Like We joke about that with him all the time. He runs so many different podcasts. He's on about three or four podcasts. Yes, he's every day he's like uploading. Day. <laughs> no, and he works a full-time job as well. So I don't know where he finds time to sleep. Um, it's it's seriously impressive, the output he he has. No, I love his enthusiasm. I, I, you can see that he's loving every minute. So, you know, I just tease him. Like, dude, what? You need to sleep or you need to do something or please don't burn out. Yeah. Yeah. We know but, we say uh, the same thing to him. No, you're, the podcast is dedicated to like international films and it's, you know, the one inch tall barrier. And that's, I, you know, I have the call here from Bong Joon-ho when he said in the Oscars, once you overcome the one installed barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many amazing films, which is so true because so many people, you say, hey, have you watched this movie? And they're like, yeah, oh, it's a Korean. Ah, I don't want to watch that. Yeah. It's Japan. Yeah. I don't, don't want to see that. And then, oh, There's so I'll many see great it. Films out there. Yeah. And oh, I'll see it, but I'm going to, can I dub it? I'm like, and I, it's one of my pet peeves. I hate dubbing. I'd rather just read the subtitles and hear the, the uh, the real language being spoken you're never going to get the same emotion from an actor doing a dub compared to the actual performance of, yes. of the actor that's on screen so you're missing out on so much i think i will make exceptions for animated stuff like i'm happy to watch studio ghibli movies that are dubbed usually because the voice cast are so impressive and i think with animation it's a bit easier to differentiate yes. But for live action stuff, like the amount of people who said, oh, I watched Squid Game dubbed, and it's going, what are you doing? Yeah, and I, I tell people when you watch like a Japanese film or a Korean film and you don't listen to the actual actors, you miss out on that passion. Yeah, it's it's a shame that so many people are put off watching great films because, you know, they don't want to read some subtitles for two hours. And, and that's why we started the podcast is 
for for other people who want to get into foreign films but might find it a bit daunting but also for ourselves because we acknowledged that foreign films were a bit of a blind spot in our own you know film viewing lives um and i think it's been awesome to to really open ourselves up to foreign films and getting to some countries that maybe people don't think of because everyone thinks of films from france or korea or japan um, yeah. so it's been nice to explore some countries that maybe don't get that same level of representation like we went to mexico to talk about alfonso Cuaron. Um, we went to norway uh, to talk about a Joachim trier film so that's been a really awesome part of it as well yeah, that y, y tu mamá también is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's one of those movies that I watched back in 2002 and I couldn't believe what I was watching because it, it's a whole different experience, especially when it gets to the climax of the movie. And at the end, it's so like the ending is so somber and different than what you saw the first 95% yeah. of the film. It trips you up. And I'm just glad that he's made some incredible english language films that people will go back to say oh let me see his, let me see his filmography the same with alejandro and, and guillermo they'll go back to see their spanish stuff yeah and with alejandro hopefully one day you you'll do uh, amores perros i don't know if you've seen that movie i haven't but it's definitely been brought up um you know we we're trying to not go back to any countries that we've already yeah. visited well uh, maybe maybe soon. in season two or season three of, of your yeah podcast. it's it's coming don't you yeah. worry it's coming yeah because that 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 film is another one that will shake you to the core and it's hard to watch if you're an animal lover i did read that no animals were hurt but the way they shot it it sure looked like animals were hurt that sounds yeah. a lot like our first, uh, our bon, bon Joon Ho's first film, Barking Dogs Never Buy It. There's actually a disclaimer at the start of that film that no animals were harmed in the making yes, of this movie. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And and having um, watching that film, you question how accurate that is. Yeah, but no, that that's a great idea for a podcast, and you guys are doing great. Thank you. All right, so next question kind of pertains to our main topic, which is Nolan, and I wanted to ask you, what was your first Nolan experience? And do you remember your first impressions of him? That's a great question, actually. Let me just pull up his filmography, because I think I know what it was. But I just want to double check. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was probably The Dark Knight. Funnily enough, I saw that before Batman Begins, because um, I was only eight when Batman Begins came out in 2005, just to make you feel a bit old there. Tony. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um but no, I watched The Dark Knight, um, you know, when I was probably like 11 or 12 and it came okay. out, you know, obviously loved it because as a kid, it's just such an awesome superhero movie. Um, it felt so different to the superhero movies that I'd been watching, you know, like the the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films and the yeah. X-Men films and things like that. It was so, so gritty and dark. Um, but I guess my my appreciation for it didn't really, you know, come out until I was a bit older and... Um, I, I started to understand a bit more about the context of it. And then, yeah, probably in the span of a few years, I sort of ticked off a lot of different Nolan films, um, things like The Prestige and Inception, Watch Memento, which I absolutely adored. And then I've sort of been keeping up with his recent releases, um, yeah. sort of from Interstellar onwards. I think my my first film that I saw from him was Batman Begins. And I went to the theater and I go, all right, another Batman. Which is weird because when you think about 2005, it was only like a few years after, you know, the other Batmans that came out. I don't know when Batman, the George Clooney one, was that was the fourth one, right? 
I think so. Yeah. 1999 or something. So maybe six years after. So in my head, you're like another Batman, but I left the theater absolutely blown away. I never seen a superhero movie like that. Prior to that, Spider-Man 2 was my favorite. And that just came out the year prior in 2004. Well, modern superhero, because my all-time favorite is Superman from 78. And that's never going to change. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I left the theater go, holy cow, this is a different style. This is a film. This is not a superhero movie. It's It totally changed the game. And I think once 2008 came, we actually had two great films. Because I thought Iron Man changed. If Iron Man sucked, we will not have MCU films at all. And part, that's part my opinion. Wishes, uh, part of me wishes Iron Man did suck. <laughs> I'd yeah. love to see an alternate universe where where the MCU never happened. Not that I have anything against no. it, like it's great, but I'd love to know what cinema would have looked like had had the MCU not happened and, and how the landscape would have changed. I still think we're in a pretty good space here. We've had some great movies despite the the deluge of MCU. <laughs> but I did I did really enjoy the first Iron Man a lot. And and I think that one came out prior to the Dark Knight and then the Dark Knight just kind of blew that away. So when I first started my Instagram account, I was stunned to see so much disregard for Nolan. There's so much the phrase overrated, overrated was used for him. Like I'd never see him mentioned with like Paul Thomas Anderson, Fincher, uh, uh, Denis Villeneuve, none of those. It's always like these people take like a fine tooth comb and pick through every single frame of his film to critique. I don't want to say hate or there's haters, but I mean, do you find that? Because I know you're a big Nolan guy. Do you think people exaggerate with their criticisms? when it comes to Nolan and give the other the others a kind of a free pass. Oh yeah, definitely. I think Nolan's a really easy target for the people who want to for lack of a better term be a bit pretentious with their film tastes and go, "Oh, I'm, you know, so much better than everyone else because I don't like Christopher Nolan films." It's like that's great. You can not like them, but to call him overrated or a bad director is so disingenuous. I think a director that can pump out you know, films of that quality that are also, you know, critically and commercially successful. There's there's no one like him. He's he's in the same sort of caliber as maybe only Spielberg. Um, and that's a, think... and that's another director that I was shocked to see people like always ah Spielberg sucks and you know he's he's a has been. I'm like he's still making pretty good movies. In, yeah. In the in the two twenty tens. I mean he made Anyway, just, I'm sorry. I don't want to go off because I get upset thinking about the hate for Spielberg. No, I totally, I totally get it. But I think, yeah, they're really easy targets because they're popular and they appeal to general audiences. I think that's the big difference in comparing, um, I guess, Nolan and Spielberg to directors like PTA or even Tarantino to an extent. I think they're so easily accessible for everyone from you know, film buffs like you and I through to my dad who rewatches the same war movies every, you know, every week. Um, <laughs> you know, it, he appeals to everyone. And I think that's why he's such an easy target for criticism. But I think you look at his filmography, he's done 12 films now, and there's not a bad film there. Even no. his worst films are still very good at best, like at worst. I mean, his first film, The Following, which is 98, it's it's not the best. I think it's I think I gave it like a seven point five. You can see in that film a filmmaker coming out 
You know what yeah, I'm saying? Like 100%. you can see it. And then with Memento, he kind of blew it away with that. Like it, it was an incredible film. And I think Insomnia is the only one that for me, it's, it's the less Nolan film he's ever made. And I think it's probably because he didn't write it. Yeah, and it was a it was a remake of a I forget which country originally made. I think it was like Finnish or Norwegian or one of those yeah. Scandinavian countries. But it was um, still a good movie. Still a good movie. Um, and I think it's the studio wanted to see what he could do with a bit of a budget, a bit of a you know higher profile cast. Um, you know, obviously you've got um, Robin Williams in there who's fantastic, and he just he does a great job with it. And I think it shows that he can do things outside of what we kind of know from Nolan, which is sort of that, you know, um, really cerebral science fiction action sort of background. Let me talk about the, actually, let me go back to the criticism of of Nolan, because I did see a few people, actually like 10 people write a review and say that for Oppenheimer, there was not enough science in the film. And I go, okay, okay which I find a little baffling because the main criticism of Nolan from, from these same people is too much scientific jargon and exposition. So I feel like he can't win. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think they just want something to complain about. Oppenheimer has flaws. I, I love it as a film. It has flaws though, but not enough science is not one of its flaws. That's, that's a bizarre criticism to make of it. Yeah, and I, I like I said, you know, everybody has a right to write their own review and, and critique, but sometimes, and I don't want to shit on their take, but I think that's just a bit of a stretch. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. the scenes where they're talking about the, the two different kinds of, of bombs, and he's got, you know, the jars with the marbles. I, I don't know what he's talking about. I just know yeah. there's going to be two bombs. And I, I did. I didn't want to get into it with anybody because I go. Okay, well, that's something that they're never going to look past. You know, it's also another critique is that he doesn't know how to write female characters, which I kind of agree with that in a sense, because in his movies, there's not that many women leads and women characters. There's a lot of dead wives in Nolan films, which is the running joke. But I will say that in this one, actually, you know what, before we get into that, let uh, let me just give the people some did you knows of the movie so oppenheimer the film chronicles the career of american theoretical physicist robert oppenheimer it focuses on the early studies his direction of the manhattan project during world war ii and his eventual fall from grace due to his 1954 security hearings so oppenheimer is the first nolan film to receive an r rating in the u.s since insomnia in 2002 and it has already reached almost 600 million dollars gross which i found shocking because i was hoping it was successful maybe is the barbenheimer <laughs> effect yeah they got people into the theater but it's still making money now it's the highest grossing world war ii movie of all time wow. i just read um it's now the 10th highest r-rated film of all time Ugh. all right so according to articles we're trying to look up <laughs> I think uh, Oppenheimer is at number four, and you have Dark Knight Rises and The Dark Knight crossing a billion and Inception at almost 900 million. All right, so why don't we get to the main event here, Kieran, and let's talk about Oppenheimer. And let's uh, actually, let's try to do like a few minutes of non spoiler. Okay. That, that way, if you know people haven't seen it yet. So, non spoiler, what was your first impression of the film when you left the theater? Man, that was a long movie. 
<laughs> it's you know i think i've talked about this with other people on on instagram but movies these days are just so long like everything's two and a half hours plus and i think some films can be long that's fine but every film is so long nowadays so first impression was damn that was long uh and then immediately after that was i can't wait to go and watch that again like a lot of nolan's films they kind of take a second viewing to fully appreciate so yeah i was like i want to i want to get back in there i want to watch this again i want to i want to dig deeper and read about it and talk about it because there was just so much to, to, to unpack um and so much to, to take away from it the reason why it feels so long is because there's 30 fucking minutes of trailers <laughs> and then then there's like 15 minutes of like non-trailers that you're sitting there then we have to have nicole kimman come out and talk about amc for another five minutes and you're like by the time you leave the theater you've been there for four hours plus yeah and, and <laughs> no i i left the theater thinking i just witnessed his greatest achievement as a filmmaker as certainly his best script uh, i think the best overall acted film this film has so much ambition it goes above and beyond I mean, Murphy and, and Downey Jr., I think, give the best performances of their career. The rest of the cast is awesome. And I, there's people that are coming out. And you know the cast is huge. And you're like, why is there so many people in this movie? Safdie, like, he comes out and you're like, he does an amazing job. His yeah. character is amazing. And then you got you have, like, Josh Hartnett, right? What's his name? Yeah, yeah. He's like a, a, a heartthrob guy. And he comes out yeah. and he's awesome. <laughs> You just and you get cameos as well from big name actors um, who who have a scene or two, and it's like, oh, you just get that actor in to do such a small role. Only Nolan could could do that. No, and then you have the score by L Ludwig Göransson. Is I can't believe it's just like breathtaking, and it just elevates the the the, the film tenfold. The cinematography, you know, everything, everything technical was yeah. above and beyond and i think that if this movie i'm okay right here i'm gonna say it right now it's what what day is what date is it it's august 12th 2023 i'm gonna predict that this movie gets 13 oscar nominations Ooh, that would be that would be seriously impressive but you think it's gonna be a lock for most technical categories I Murphy so. and Downey Jr. will probably get nominated. Emily Blunt's probably getting nominated. Yes. I I think uh, Blunt, she the, the for her first like few scenes, you're like, okay, I get what she's going with this character, and then there is a scene that well, actually, we'll talk about that later with the spoiler chat because uh, I do want to talk about that scene. That but suffice uh, to say, she she's great in this film. Yeah. Um, so thirteen Oscar nominations definitely not off the table, and I think it would probably deserve it. And we'll see. I'm just I, this is me like putting positive vibes out there because the the academy doesn't do doesn't really like Nolan at that much when it no. comes to this movie. So hopefully this movie is so successful and it's so talked about and so acclaimed. And, and it's acclaimed by the the critics too. Usually it's yeah. like his movies are like in the seventies uh, and Rotten Tomatoes yeah, or seventy five. This, this, this one is, is like really high well. like high nineties or something like that. Um, okay, that's enough for non-spoiler because I really want to talk about this movie. <laughs> All right, so if you haven't seen the movie, press pause. I'll have a, a timestamp and you could just fast forward. All right, let me let me just talk about my biggest criticism of the movie, and that's Florence Pugh. The way she was used, I felt wasn't needed, 
and kind of slow the momentum of the film down. <laughs> the fact that she's naked 98% of the time was so distracting. And then there's a scene where they're like, she's dry humping Killian Murphy in a, in a, in a room with 10 people. And I don't know what was said because you know what I'm saying? Like why? I don't understand that. I don't understand the, because this, this person in Oppenheimer's life was indeed very important. And I felt that it was just kind of brushed away really quick just to have those sexy scenes or whatever. But I felt there was a waste of her. Yeah. I think, I think it was, I don't think it was handled the best. I think her character could have been better utilized, but I don't, but it was still a good addition to the film. It was still an important addition. Um, the sex scenes and the nudity felt unnecessary, as I think they often do in films. Like, I don't yeah. have an issue with it of being like, oh, you can't show that in a movie because that's dumb. Um, but I think it needs to serve a purpose like anything. Like, having gratuitous violence in your film needs to serve a purpose beyond just yeah. being gratuitous violence. So I don't know if that really added anything. I did actually like the scene, as strange as it was, of her on top of Killian Murphy in the <laughs> in the hearing um because that's you know the first time that that his wife played by Emily Blunt finds out about the two of them having an affair and so she's she's visualizing it in that moment which i think um was a really interesting way but why not visualize it with them in bed in a different room under the sheets i, I just... think it makes you feel uncomfortable as a it, viewer it was which... it was very uncomfortable but it, for me it just kind of like the train is moving so smoothly, the movie. Now, all of a sudden, there's a big wooden four by four on the tracks and just kind of <laughs> stops because I'm like, the whole theater, like they're like, what the fuck is going on here? It's really weird for a Nolan film as well because he, yeah. and I've joked about this with other people, he's a weirdly asexual director. Like, sex just doesn't seem to exist in Nolan's world, um, which was really funny watching Following. That was the last film of his that I saw before. Oppenheimer and that's got you know some some sex scenes in it and stuff like yeah. that so it was really weird to go you know he started with a film that had a sex scene he's sort of his latest film has a sex scene but everything else in between is very it, it sort of exists in a universe where sex doesn't exist in his mind so it was really quite out there for him I agree and I think I for me I just felt like it, it's distracting because if you're gonna have her naked Hey, let's have Killian naked too, for real. Let's see some butt. Let's see some. You know, I think it's uh, good. I think it's. I think it's important that we show you know uh, equality in nudity. Yes, um, I, because I, I feel I did... like women get lumped with so many nude scenes. So it's it's nice to see some man ass as well. <laughs> man ass, yes, because I did read <laughs> something that it was going to show all his stuff. So apparently they cut it. Because I read an article saying that it was going to be uh, not only Florence will have uh, frontal nudity, also Killian would. But he all he did was sit down with his legs yeah. crossed. So yeah. that wasn't really fair. Anyway, so that was my pretty much my main issue with the film. I didn't have an issue with the t with the runtime. The, <laughs> the only reason why a little bit is because the theater, the AC went out and oh, everybody no. was sweat. I mean, it, the theater was packed and you could feel like hot breathing and just like all that it was miserable i just want to say the screening that i went to was honestly really surprising because i hate going to movies when they first come out i hate packed theaters because yeah. i just find ever since covid it's like everyone forgot how to behave in public so you get people talking during the movie you get people showing up late and it's it's so obnoxious so i usually go and see things like a month after they come out of the movies yeah. when no one's there 
but I went to see Oppenheimer the day after it came out, packed theatre, and no one made a sound for the whole three hours. And I was like, good on you guys. This is awesome. Like, this is what <laughs> movies should be like. Everyone shut up, turn off your phones, watch the goddamn movie. And that was great. So I loved that. Um, yeah, the film was great. It helps to watch it in IMAX with those super loud speakers. Because even if some idiot is talking, you can't really hear them. I don't want to hear you talking at all because I fucking spent money. We all spent money to watch. If you're going to talk, just go outside. I think the worst, worst one is I went and saw Titanic for its 25th anniversary last year. And there was a woman who, when we got, when it got to the end of the film and, and Jack's on the door, um, she was sobbing uncontrollably and very loudly so the whole theater could hear her. And it was oh so God. awkward. My lady, this is just a movie. And, this is <laughs> and you've probably seen it before. Yes. <laughs> I remember watching that movie in the theater when it came out with my mother. And there was a lot of crying. <laughs> but, I mean, this was the first time they watched it. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that's a little bit different. Um, and, and look, films get emotional. I watched Across the Spider-Verse the other day. And I got a little bit teary-eyed in that when, you know, Miles Morales' mom is talking to him. Well, I haven't seen it yet, so. Okay. All right. I watched, All actually, right. I, I watched the first 10 minutes yesterday, and then I realized I had to go to work, and I go, I can't watch a two-hour movie because I have to get up in three hours or four hours. So that's why I was up so early. But let me, let me ask you if you noticed something when I was watching the film, and the first 20 minutes, I'd say it felt, non-Nolan to me the cuts usually when Mer or Oppenheimer's thinking and you have the vibration of the soundtrack or the atoms or, or the molecules it felt very different than anything I've ever seen from Nolan and when we started getting those cuts from at I think the the middle of the film and to the end the movie felt like an Oliver Stone movie like it felt like JFK yeah. Nixon to me which i love both of those films so much so i was in heaven uh, but did you did you have a sense in the first 20 minutes that you're like wow this is kind of a different nolan vibe yeah 100 percent. i think if you were to kind of if you were to do like a scale you know of, of most nolan to least nolan at the most nolan end of the scale i think you've got things like tenet uh dunkirk and interstellar and then down the other end of the scale you do have things like insomnia um and Oppenheimer because they do feel quite different you can still see it's very much a Nolan film but they do have a bit of a different style and a different vibe I wanted to mention again I think this is his best script uh because I was fully engaged in the in in the dialogue and it wasn't like scientific jargon that we get even though I love that it felt more human <laughs> the dialogue and especially yeah. the the performances he got from Murphy and Downing and I think even though I love Murphy's performance so much, I was in awe of Robert Downey Jr. in this movie, especially towards the end. Yeah, and I, I think I it's the best performance we've seen from from Robert Downey Jr. He's done some great stuff over the years, um, and he's done some great dramatic stuff as well as the sort of dramatic comedic stuff like his role as Iron Man or Sherlock Holmes or in things like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, or Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin as well. But I think as a serious dramatic role, he's phenomenal. It's one of his best. If he's not nominated for best actor in a supporting role come Oscars season, I'm gonna be shocked because he was he was outstanding. 
even when he's in the scene with Murphy, he is standing out as the best yeah. in the room. Yeah, he's got such a weight and gravitas to him that you can't help but be drawn into the character and the performance. And he just really catches your eye and catches your attention, especially because he's such a dominant force compared to uh, to Murphy as Oppenheimer, who feels sort of meek in comparison, mm-hmm. whereas Strauss is, is very domineering. And I think you get the Murphy performance towards the end when he is contemplating what he has done in creating yeah. this bomb. And like you can yeah. see that incredible scene of him them celebrating him and he doesn't know what to do. He's thinking about, you know, the aftermath of what he's done and him kind of saying, Oh, too bad we didn't have it for the Germans or so. We wish wish it was we could have dropped it on Germany. Or like like he didn't really mean that. He just felt like he was in an awkward position. You know, yeah, he, I mean, I can't of... imagine, you know, the weight of that responsibility to know that even though you, there were so many people involved in the Manhattan Project and who who worked on the atomic bomb and, and while he didn't put it in the plane and he didn't drop the bomb or make the order, there's still that sense of responsibility that, you know, the, the, these deaths of, of tens and hundreds of thousands of people is, is squarely on your shoulders. That's yeah. it's a huge, huge weight. And I think that really comes across in the performance really well. And I think a lot of people, me included, were worried that this would be too pro atom bomb and, you know, kind of, you know, hip hip hooray kind of thing. And I like the fact that it was more centered of, we're just giving you the facts about the bomb and we're giving you his reaction of holy shit what what have i done kind of thing and i like the fact that they included that because i didn't want to have a a movie about hey we're gonna drop this bomb let's cheer you know f you know screw the japanese and and there was one scene that i thought was kind of silly that they included of of the general i don't know if he was a general i think he was like a um high-ranking person in um in uh truman's cabinet we said well we can't we can't bomb kyoto because i i love vacationing there but that's was, actually true that actually no, no, i i just kind of felt so ugh, like so maddening of somebody saying that like yeah, yeah. like it's crazy that you know I, the, the general whoever he was you know he said he went there on on his honeymoon with his wife um but it was true you know that for people that don't know that the U.S. were thinking of choosing Kyoto as a target, but because of its cultural significance and its heritage, yeah. um, they decided against it. So it's it is crazy that you're talking about dropping a bomb on a city and and, and killing all these people, and and you yeah, but you're you're actively thinking about yeah. oh, but we can't bomb there because it's too significant, and it, it's just mind blowing to think about. Yeah. Back to the acting, there's so many great cameos here. I just want to give a shout out to. Alden uh, Ehrenreich, who I thought was a great, and I saw him, I go, oh shit, Indy's here. (laughs) Not Indy, Han Solo. And he's kind of an aide to um, Robert Downey. And he did a really good job. He was fantastic. I think the funniest cameo for me, and this was one where I sort of, I looked at him and I was like, is that who I think it is? And then I got out of the movie and Googled it and it was. Uh, is when Oppenheimer meets with with President Truman, oh, who is played by Gary Oldman. <laughs> he's he's in it for a couple of minutes, one oh. scene, and you just you just get you know 
one of the, one of the greatest actors of, of the current generation um, in Gary Oldman to just rock up and do one scene. But he's such a chameleon that I it took me a while to recognize him and I still wasn't certain until the credits rolled. And he does, if you look at Truman and you look at the makeup they did for Oldman, it's kind of eerie because they look similar. But now you have Oldman who has played Churchill. Now he's played <laughs> Truman. So Truman. Just, whoever was Prime Minister of Australia during uh, World War Two, we just need to get him to do like the trifecta of, yeah. of World War Two, uh, you know, allied country leaders. The one I'll say one thing: the one actor who made a little cameo that felt a little out of place was Rami Malek, even though he did good. It just felt yeah kind of odd to see him there. Yeah, I did wonder that because we see him sort of maybe halfway, two thirds of the way through the film, yeah. and he's just sort of a background character. And you go, oh, that's weird. You don't get Rami Malek just to play a, a background character. He's obviously got something more, and then he comes into it at the end of the film. Um, I love Malek as an actor. I think he's fantastic, but he, I think he requires a certain sort of role. He has, he, he can feel out of place in in certain movies. I think, yeah. you know, I love him as Mister Robot. I love him. Um, in No Time to Die as the villain. Um, but yeah, there's certain films like this and uh, Amsterdam, which came out last year, that he just feels a bit out of place. Yeah. And it's funny how you see, I'm looking at the cast list and I go, wow, you have, I'm seeing at least three three Academy Award winners with cameos. So you have Rami Malek, Gary Oldman, Casey Affleck, who was frightening, who was amazing in that one scene that he did. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit, I'm having goosebumps here. Yeah, he's looking Casey at... Affleck is fantastic, and again, only a small part, but he he just really runs away with it. Um, <laughs> the the cameo that made me laugh the most though was was the Josh Peck cameo. Oh yeah. <laughs> Go well, ahead. I like I never watched him because I was already older in my twenties. So I never yeah. watched those shows, so I I know that my kids used to watch that that show. It is funny to see him in a in a World War II Nolan film. Yeah, that was that was weird. As someone who grew up like in in the Drake and Josh era, seeing him being being the guy with the responsibility of pressing the button during the Trinity test, that was yeah. pretty funny. Well, let's talk about that scene because that scene was one of the best scenes I've ever seen in ever in a theater. I mean, the the yeah. way they shot it, the way was blowing my mind while I'm watching the the movie, and I'm telling my son, by the way, there's no CGI here. This is all practical effects. Yeah. And he goes, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, there's no CGI in the movie. The fact that they went above and beyond and I go, and I'm thinking I left the theater and I go, wow, this movie must have cost 300 million. The way it yeah. looks, the way it feels, the way it sounds, everything. And it only costs 100 million. So yeah, it's, how about that? it's incredible. <laughs> um, that scene is is phenomenal. And I would have loved to have experienced it in IMAX. Obviously, the moment where everything goes quiet and you know that you're waiting for that explosion, but it's, but it still just blows you away when it hits you. Um, to see that on IMAX would have been incredible. In the in the little theater that I saw it in on seventy millimeter, that was still, you know, yes, so loud. I think it was kind of shaking the the the, the, the seats, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was probably the best scene he's directed. I know I'm saying the best this, the best that, but that's how I just feel because I think. The fact that they did this all practical, you have to have to stand up and applaud that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because he Not could have e he could have easily done, you know what? Uh ILM, can you just do that for me really quick? 
or, yeah. or, or Weta back in New Zealand. Can you guys do that for me? I don't want yeah. to deal with, you know, this thing. Um, I think that's one of the things that's always been so impressive about Nolan is his, his penchant for, for practical effects. And people people don't seem to understand the difference between special effects and CGI. Like, yes, there are special effects in and visual effects in Oppenheimer, yeah. but there is not computer-generated imagery. So that's yes. the that's the differentiation. Not to take over your show, but off the top of your head, do you have a top three scenes in Nolan films? Obviously, the, the trendy test being number one. Um, holy shit. Hmm. I love the interrogation scene between Joker and Batman. I think that scene, Heath Ledger solidified his, or he cemented his Oscar win. Killing is making a choice. Where are they? Choose between one life or the other. Your friend, the district attorney, or his blushing bride to be. <laughs> you have nothing. Nothing to threaten me with. Nothing to do with all your strength. Um, I could watch that scene over and over again and just, he looks at him like, you have nothing. To yeah. bargain with me, the way he he delivers that line, and you go, "Holy shit, this guy is truly crazy!" And that's what I think. That's my favorite scene of the whole movie, Trinity, and then wow, well, that's just hard. The docking um, scene in Interstellar. I love the scene where they're talking about which planet they need to go to. The docking scene is great. Oh, you just put me on the spot, bro. Come on. <laughs> I like to do that. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I'm definitely the Batman and Joker. And then uh, the Trinity, and I, I'd have to think hard for because there's like Inception has some amazing Dunkirk uh, has amazing scenes. Tenant, what about you? Funnily enough, the interrogation scene for me as well. That's as you said, it's the moment where you really appreciate Heath Ledger's performance. Um, that's that's the one I was thinking of, and purely from I guess like a a filmmaking perspective, I love the rotating hallway in Inception. Oh, I, awesome, I love I love the way that looks. I love everything about it. It's um, it just for me it kind of encapsulates the 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 tone and spirit of the film. So I really do love that scene in Inception. And that was uh, I I didn't I never got to watch behind the scenes of that. It was that that was a uh, they had a like in a machine right? They were the, yeah. The room? There okay. was a really rot you know really a rotating hallway, which again just. You know, you could do it with CGI, you could do it with with tricks, but Nolan went, no, let's build a hallway and let's put it inside a big machine and let's literally rotate it. I imagine the guys that work with him, they're like, oh, what does he want now? What do, we have to build? what do we have to build now for this guy? Somebody needs to say no to Christopher, but we're all too afraid. Oh, oh he wants a 747. Okay, let's get that for him. For oh, Santa. he wants to crash it into a hangar. I guess we're going to have to do it. Yeah. Let me let's talk about uh, we talked about uh, Emily Blunt in the non-spoiler, but I do want to highlight her because I'm thinking it's her last scene as she's getting interrogated. She starts like being like a meek person, right? She's not responding at all. And all of a sudden she like flips a switch. What is going on here? Like the way she's responding to the questions, the way she is talking so confidently. <laughs> I told myself right there, I go. She just got herself an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I love that scene, and like you said, I think that's the that's the scene where if she does end up with a with an Oscar nomination for this film, that'll be the scene they they show in in the little highlights package because 
she's awesome there um you know where she just turns the tables on jason clark who's who's doing the interrogation yeah, yeah just, jason clark i forgot about him he's he's awesome too another he's, great actor he's, uh, he's a dick but he plays a really <laughs> really good dick. He, he's, he's he plays the same character in most films but he does it really well um and i was just looking at the cast list again um and kenneth branner as well yes, playing I just Neil, Neil Bourne. um you know, so another another great actor with a relatively small role. As great as Killian Murphy is, not to take anything away from his performance, the two performances that I took away from the film most were probably Emily Blunt's and Robert Downey Jr.'s. Yeah, I have uh, Downey Murphy and then Emily Blunt, and then the, with the Kenneth Brana. I think it was fun. This is his third Nolan movie, and this is like three different accents. He did. He played. He was in Dunkirk. He was a British officer, right? And then he was, uh, was he Russian in Tenet? Like a, yep. a Russian guy? And now he was yep. like a German. Yeah. So he's done a few, he's done a few different accents, uh, Branner, but I think he's, a, he's an awesome actor um, and love his collaborations with yeah. Nolan. But we talked about him briefly before, but again, Benny Safdie, really, yeah. I think he, he was awesome in all of his scenes. Um, he's a fantastic actor as well as, you know, directing um with his brother so he, he's a person he some more. he's a he's a person in this movie that i wouldn't be shocked if he got any kind of nods and i'll talk about matt damon he played the stereotypical american general but he played it to a t and he did it well like he could have been annoying he could have been like a uh you know rah rah but he gave it some nuance yeah Again. i think damon was the perfect actor to play that sort of character because he does play those kinds of characters really well um and with with the nuance as you said whereas i think there's a lot of other uh characters within the film that i could have seen that role going to someone else like you look at danny jr's character in in lewis strauss i could see someone like gary oldman playing that character yeah um but while matt damon isn't getting all of the all of the applause necessarily i think he was the perfect man for that job let me ask you, other than the Trinity, because I think that's the biggest scene in the film, uh, what was your favorite scene? Actually, other than Emily Blunt and the Trinity, what was your favorite moment of the film? Or moments, if you have moments. Now, now you've put me on the spot because those are those are probably my two favorite scenes in the film. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the scenes between Oppenheimer, obviously played by Killian Murphy, and Edward Teller, played by Benny Safdie. I loved their interactions of, it felt like they were, you know, these two extremely intelligent men, um, both kind of working towards the same goal, but both had very different ideas for how to do it and different feelings about the project. Like, I felt like Teller, you know, didn't really care about the ramifications of his work. He just wanted to to make it work. Whereas, you know, Oppenheimer was much more, conflicted and, and and morally confounded by what they were doing so the the interactions that they had um i really enjoyed all of those and especially when teller comes into the security clearance hearing and and sort of says i i believe you know that that oppenheimer is loyal to his country and wouldn't betray america but would i give him security clearance no and, yeah. and oppenheimer just sort of it's sort of this like quiet resignation of like, what can I do? So I love those interactions. All of those scenes are great. I for me like a lot. I see a lot of people uh, not liking the hearings. There's oh that that kind of that we could have shaved all that off. I love the hearings part. 
And I think that, and that's what we get Downey at his best when he realizes that he's being screwed over. Yeah, yeah. And that's when he gets to that Oscar winning role that I think he hopefully gets. Those scenes to me stood out because that was so important back then when it comes to in, in the in the US back in the in the late 40s and 50s, it was so taboo, so anti, you could not have an ounce or inkling of being communist at all. Yeah. You you were blacklisted, everything. So that for me that for that to have such a big big spotlight in the film made sense and i i didn't yeah. mind that because the, the the trinity test was what two hours in and then yeah we had it was an, pretty I, late in the film and then we had at least 45 minutes of hearings and, and the interrogations and stuff like that and i just loved every minute of it maybe because i'm just like a world war ii freak and i just love all this <laughs> stuff uh so that was for me those were my favorite moments coming to the end i did like the einstein thing at when they brought it to a conclusion at the end the music the cinematography but that's just you know that's just too easy <laughs> to talk i think about. it's probably i think it's probably nolan's best looking and best sounding film like the yeah. score is is phenomenal um obviously he's had some great scores before in things like inception and stella and the dark knight but i think this is probably the best music in a nolan film and I think visually, even though it doesn't have, I guess, some of the more impressive elements of things like Interstellar or Dunkirk, um, I think it's it's shot so well. So technically, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, usually his film has there's action in it, and this one relied more on the human element, human connection, human interactions with you know the characters interacting with one another. And that's why I believe it was his best script because he had to really dig down here because it could have been a boring, boring dialogue. Yeah. It could have, yeah. it could have been really boring with the kind of like, I don't want to bring the prequels of star Wars, but kind of so, <laughs> you know how they talked about taxes and you're like, Oh, what, what are yeah. we talking about here? I think uh, it was and, handled really well. Yeah. Um, and I mean, as someone you know, I really enjoy courtroom dramas as a as a genre. You know, things like Twelve Angry Men or The Trial of the Chicago Seven. That that's my jam. So to see a Nolan film that's sort of like a war film crossed with a courtroom drama, I was I was very much there for that. When I did my um, rankings, I I wanted to watch Oppenheimer a second time. I just couldn't do it, and I go, you know what? I can't put it at my number one yet. <laughs> so I wanted to. <laughs> But like I've seen Interstellar so many times, and I go, I have a, I don't know, I have like a special connect connection to the movie. Uh, but I think when I see Oppenheimer again a few more times, it may creep up to number one. Actually, why don't we do that really quick? Why don't we? Uh, I have my rankings here. You have yours ready to go. I've got mine here. Yep. Okay. Why don't you do your twelve through six? All right. So twelve through six, starting at the bottom. Uh, I've got Following, which is his first film. Then Tenet, which is a bit of a controversial pick. Uh, Insomnia at 10. Number nine, Batman Begins. Another controversial positioning. Number eight, this, there's a lot of controversy in my list. Number eight is Dunkirk. Number seven, The Dark Knight Rises. And number six, Interstellar. 
All right, Karen, I don't, I can't even understand what's going on here. So you have, I'm not going to give you a lot of shit because I have the similar, <laughs> similar things here. Uh, following at 12, I think that's universal for everybody. I have the Dark Knight Rises at 11. Then I have Insomnia at 10. Uh, number nine, I have Tenant. But let me just say this, nine through one. All those movies are nine out of ten or higher. Wow. So that's just me. Like, even though ten is at nine, it's still a nine out of ten for me. Uh, number eight, Batman Begins, seven, Prestige, and six, Inception. Inception was my number one for so long. All right. So what's your five through two? Five through two. Uh, so number five, you got Oppenheimer. Uh, number four is the prestige. Number three, Memento. Number two, Inception. And if you do the maths, you can work out what number one is. <laughs> uh, so five for me is Dunkirk. Four is The Dark Knight. Three, Memento. Two, I'm going to do Oppenheimer. And I guess we have the same number one. Is that right? The Dark Knight. No, no. Oh, what? where'd you have Interstellar? Interstellar six. Oh, my gosh. I didn't see that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're best friends, number one. No, so that, that's that's probably the most controversial one in my whole list is having Interstellar all the way down at six. When oh. I did my Nolan rankings, that was the one that I got the most shit about. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> and let me uh, just give a shout out to uh, Courtney Kitty, who asked the question, what's your top three Nolan filmography? So we just gave you the whole thing, Kate, uh, Courtney enjoy it's not a top three it's a top 12 top 12 so where do you have oppenheimer in your 2023 rankings that is a great question i've not seen a lot of 2023 films i've been pretty slack and also uh as great of a country as australia is we get totally shafted when it comes to release dates i think asteroid city only just came out in cinemas this week and i think it's already out on streaming in the u.s so i'm a bit behind um but for me, Oppenheimer is currently second for okay. the 2023 rankings. Well, what do you have at number one? Barbie. <laughs> I have Barbie at eight, even though I really enjoyed Barbie. Actually, let's talk about Barbie. Because right. I think it's... Uh, I wanted to talk about Barbie in the future, but if I don't, here's, <laughs> here's a Barbie discussion. I didn't realize I was going to have so much fun watching this movie. Yeah, and and when I see people criticize it, I go, "Did we watch the same movie?" Because yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. One is not anti men. I'm a man. I've married for 23 years. I have two kids. Maybe I see it differently. Maybe I'm not this 18 year old testosterone filled <laughs> alpha wannabe that feels threatened when I see women on screen, what they were saying and projecting in the movie was not anti-men. So if you see, if you're saying it's anti-men, I think you really have to look deep inside of yourself and get some therapy, maybe. (laughs) I think it says more about you than it does about the film. Yeah. And there is a moment where America Ferrera has a monologue and I literally, when she finished it, she's talking about the, you know, what more women have to go through. And I said, right on. (laughs) Like, well, she was done. <laughs> I said it like loud, like right on, like, but like you go, not, not sarcastically. I was saying, like, right yeah. on. 
you know, when Ken discovers the patriarchy in the real world, it was so yeah. hilarious. But the way they brought it back to the bar, I thought it was an ingenious movie, and I'm I'm happy that that it's making so much money. I'm I'm happy for Gre- Greta Gerwig. It has that touch. What makes What About Barbie has it at your number one spot? I think for me, it's just it's the rewatchability. I think there's so much you can take away from it each time you know you view it differently um i think it's so fun it's so light-hearted and hilarious but also really touching and emotional and just really hits to the core i think for oppenheimer it's a great film but i think there are films out there like oppenheimer not exactly the same obviously it's pretty unique but i think there are films like oppenheimer i don't think there's anything like barbie i've never experienced anything like it Oppenheimer, I went in with expectations, and those expectations were pretty much all met. Barbie, I had no idea what to expect, and it just, you could never have predicted it in a million years. I feel the same way, because I went in just to have a good time. I was trying so hard to coordinate Oppenheimer and Barbie the same day. I really wanted to do it, but the showtimes in the theater wasn't, you know, I couldn't work it out. So I watched Oppenheimer that Thursday and then Friday, the next day we watched Barbie and it was so good. The theater was full. Everybody was laughing. There's so many. I mean, I love the fact that Ryan Gosling is so into it. Yeah, that's one of the best things about it. He just completely takes that role of Ken and runs with it and has so much fun with it. Yeah, and that's you could see his face. He's projecting that charisma of Ken. You know, there's so many different actors that could have done that, but I think it was he was perfect to do it. I think Robbie was the perfect actress to play Barbie. I think she brought, um, you know, all the rights. You know, she ticks all the right boxes for the character. Um, And I loved the little joke with the narrator. Um, You know, when Barbie's (laughs) talking about how you know it's it's hard being you know you don't have to be perfect all the time and all this sort of stuff, and the narrator just goes, "Margot Robbie is the wrong actress if you're trying to talk about not being perfect," which I just loved. It was a Helen Helen Mirren, right? Helen Mirren was the narrator. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was funny. Yeah, that that made me laugh. You know what's the the part that made me so happy and my heart was like filled was seeing Rhea Perlman in the movie you know because I, I grew up watching her in Cheers but to see her with the white hair and just next to Margot because Margot's so tall she's so tiny yeah I, it felt ugh, it was just perfect and I love that they casted her another another Australian actress again Margot Robbie yeah for for Barbie I have it at eight but still I really I want to watch it again I just <laughs> I love the fact that it's making so much money and it's making all these butthurt film boys pissed. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do love that. The fact that it crossed a billion dollars. I mean, like it's everyone's probably saying it now, but I, I remember, you know, speaking with a couple of people before Barbie came out and I went, this is going to make a billion dollars. Like it's, it's just got so much hype. It's so, so much mass appeal this is going to make some serious money and it crossed the billion dollar mark just the other day it's now the highest grossing film by a female director i think it only took uh, 17 days to cross that's incredible i'm trying to look up the budget the budget was 100 and says 128 to 145 so they've made their money (laughs) well and truly and i mean 
the the marketing campaign the whole barbenheimer thing and the memes that have come out about barbie like you couldn't you can't buy that you can't make that happen it's just yeah. so organic um and just letting the internet run away with something um and i think that worked out in their favor so massively all right let me go get to the questions here really quick before we head out um uh, luke underscore reviews he asked what one actor you'd love to see nolan collaborate with that he hasn't Ooh, i think i don't know how well they'd collaborate with nolan and this is just my personal bias because of how much i love them as actors but I would love to see either Jake Gyllenhaal or Ryan Gosling work with Nolan. Oh. I think they could both be good leading men in in a film of his. Um, and I think they're just absolutely phenomenal actors. They're probably my two favorite actors working today. Um, so I'd love to see them collaborate with him. I'm going to say if he ever came out of retirement, please, Daniel, I know you're making shoes somewhere. Daniel Day. <laughs> cobbling somewhere. <laughs> cobbling somewhere in France or wherever you live in now. Uh, I would have loved to have seen Daniel Day-Lewis in a Nolan film, uh, but that's not going to happen. Maybe a Walking Phoenix. Yeah. Kind of a thriller, because he hasn't really done a thriller since Insomnia, right? Yeah, well, I mean, he's done things with elements of thrillers, like yeah. Dunkirk and Tenet, but an out-and-out thriller? Um, yeah, Insomnia yeah. would have been the last one. Yeah. I, uh, Merck with the movies asks, now that you've seen Oppenheimer... Do you want Nolan's Howard Hughes film? Um, so for those who don't know, Nolan had intended to make a Howard Hughes film uh, in the early 2000s, the late 90s, but that was when Scorsese was doing The Aviator. Uh, so Nolan shelved that project because he didn't want to make the exact same film that another director was making. I don't know if I'd want to see a Howard Hughes film from Nolan just because The Aviator is already there and it's so good. But yeah. I'd love to see another biopic from Nolan. I think he has a real knack for the genre. Mm-hmm. I think if he picks the right people, I think he could he could do some really interesting stuff. But I don't know off the top of my head who I'd like to see him do one on. It would have been interesting to see who he would have cast as a Howard Hughes back in yeah. the mid-2000s, because that's when he was going to make it. But no, I think I agree with you. The Scorsese suffice and... Kate Blanchett gives one of her best performances in that movie. And yeah. uh, I, for me, she's she's the whole movie. She steals the movie for me. All right, uh, Film Forager, Shan, she asks, if you could take one Nolan film on an island with you, what would you take? Choose wisely. Oh, it's my favorite, so it feels like an obvious answer, but I'd have to go with The Dark Knight just because I think it is so rewatchable. I think I've seen that film probably a dozen times now and I still enjoy it every single time. Um, And I think the great thing is, even though it's the middle film in the trilogy, it works so well as a standalone film. Yeah. You know, it's very clear what's happening at the beginning and has a pretty, you know, precise ending. So I think even if you don't have the other films, you can still really enjoy it. So for me, it's got to be The Dark Knight. I think before I answer, I want to say that Batman Begins is inching closer and closer to the Dark Knight for me. Wow. I love Batman Begins, and I love the fact that once Batman Begins finishes, I want to see the Dark Knight right away, instantly. <laughs> like I want to play, yeah. because you have that amazing ending scene of Gary Oldman saying, oh, we have this guy here. He's leaving his calling card, and it's the Joker card, which I thought yeah. was perfect. And I love Liam Neeson in the movie. He's I thought he was a great villain. 
a movie I could take to an island with me. Oh my gosh. I I would say Interstellar, but that would be a little depressing <laughs> to watch over and over again. But uh hmm, damn it. I'm gonna do ah fuck it, just interstellar. That'll give me <laughs> I'll just watch that. All right, so last question from uh I'm gonna say uh, SA underscore M019. So Sam, how did you see the runtime of the film of Oppenheimer, the way they handled it, the pace of it? We kind of talked about it, but you said you would shave 15 minutes from it right yeah i think because it clocks in pretty much bang on three hours i think you could probably get it down to about 245 and it would be a better paced film was it was it three hours and then you minus the 10 minutes of credits or was it three hours and 10 minutes i think it's three hours including including credits so realistically if you think of it as a two hour 50 minute film you could probably get it down to about two and a half minus credits um you can i don't mean like cut out like a whole 10 minute chunk but you could probably shave a couple of minutes off of some of the scenes of uh you know killian interacting with florence Pugh and some of those early communist party meetings and things like that those are probably the ones that i felt didn't add the most but definitely not the worst paced film that I've seen. All right, Kieran, I'm going to put you in. There's a new segment I'm doing called In the Real Spotlight. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. There's five, really, really easy, really fun. So first one is, who would play you in a biopic and who would direct the movie? Oh, that's a really tough one. Um, I mean, I'm only quite young and I don't know many young actors, but maybe when I'm a bit older, Ewan McGregor, I feel, could could pull me off quite well. Um, and as for directing, uh, he's no longer with us, uh, but I think John Hughes would uh, would do a oh, good job with so the nice, story of my life. Nice light comedy movie. Yeah, I think I think Ewan McGregor in like a slice of life, uh, you know, dramedy type thing. Oh, that's cool. All right, second question: It's your last day on Earth. What's your last meal? Oh, um, I'm a big steak guy. I love a good steak. Like that's a little, like every every birthday I go out to a different restaurant um, that's known for steak, and I'll have a steak. So, like some some steak and some like proper hand cut chips. That's that's really the spot for me. Chips meaning fries for everybody here in the states. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny because guys, uh, last podcast said steak as well. How many ounces? Oh, that- were, how many ounces were we talking? 32 I don't, in, I don't work in ounces so 350 grams is usually like uh, a nice nice spot for a, like a like an eye fillet or something like that i don't know what that would quite to in ounces i'm not going to do the math here but yeah uh, that sounds pretty big uh any so the 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 chips or slash fries anything to wash it down with oh i'm uh we we can't get it here in Australia, um, but I love when I go back to the UK. I love having this. Um, but cherry coke, cherry Coca Cola. Oh, cool. you can't you can't get it here in Australia. Um, but I absolutely love that. That's that's my drink of choice. Next question is kind of a dorky one. Um, if music played every time you walked in a room, what song would you have playing? Oh, that's a really tough one. That. Um, I feel like just because of of where i'm from like i'm from manchester in the uk i feel like it'd have to be an oasis song i feel like it would have to be something like wonderwall every time i walk into a room <laughs> okay. um that's which, a good song uh, yeah yeah it's, it's a good song i feel like it just fits for me 
So last question is the one I'm going to ask. And it's pretty much, we'll seal the deal if I like you as a person or not. Are you a big pizza eater? Uh, Yeah, I would say so. So, you know, there's one type of topping that is a bone of contention for everybody here. Yep. And it's called pineapples. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy pineapples on pizza? Absolutely not. Okay, there you go. That's two for two. You and Gaia said no. Thank you very much. I think it should be against the law <laughs> to have pineapples on pizza. That's not a <laughs> it should be meat and that's it. Maybe I know people like mushrooms on it, maybe some green peppers, I guess, but not fruit. No. Fruit should not be <laughs> on pizza. That's serial killer behavior right there. Or having a, a well done steak and then using ketchup to eat it. <laughs> absolutely yep kieran thank you so much for joining me bro i really appreciate it a lot of fun we could talk nolan for hours oh thank you for having me it's been fun you know i like the sound of my own voice uh, i keep joking about <laughs> that but there's a little bit of truth in it so it's great to be on here and you know i started this account to talk movies with people so when opportunities like this present themselves i just jump at them so yeah thanks for having me on but uh, let sounds, the people know awesome. where they can find you on social media. Yeah, so I don't use a whole lot of socials. Instagram is my main one. You can find me over there on Pretentious Film Club um, and then also on Letterboxd, uh, Pretentious FC, where you'll see a lot of my uh, shorter reviews and reviews for older films and things like that that I don't always cover on Instagram. No Twitter, no nothing. No Twitter. Um, I mean, I do social media for for work, so I try not to spend too much time yeah. on it um, in my free time. Um, well, but I'm, I'm also, I, I apologize. X. It's not Twitter X. anymore. Yeah, we don't want to upset uh, upset Mr. Musk any more than he's already upset about something. But I'll also give a shout out to um, to my podcast as well that you mentioned earlier, that One Inch Barrier. Um, where we talk about foreign films, you can find us on on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and wherever you download your podcasts. So, if you like podcasts, which you probably do because you're here, yeah, I've got one as well. So check that out. I will definitely put all that in the description, so you guys listening can listen to Kieran and Nick. And I'm sorry, I've always forget the other guy's name. Uh, Josh. Josh. Um, I think you've only done what seven episodes. Or six? Seven, seven episodes, I think. Uh, we just, yeah, we release first Monday of every month. Um, so we're, we're sitting down to watch a four-hour Indian film ne for next episode, which is going to be fun. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, so highly recommend the One Inch Barrier uh, podcast. They're, they're like, what, an hour, right? Yeah, usually about hour. an hour, yeah. Quick, nice and easy. And it'll pump you up to make you want to watch uh, films that you'd have to read, but who cares? Just fucking watch movies. Expand your mind. <laughs> All right, Kieran. Well, I'll let you go. And again, thank you so much for uh, uh, joining me here in the real spotlight. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Real Spotlight. It would be greatly appreciated if you save, download, follow the pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whichever app you use to listen to your podcast to follow the podcast on instagram go to the underscore real spotlight there in the bio is all the info for all the socials i do host another podcast with the arab khaleesi called dancing with dragons where we talk all things game of thrones and house of the dragons so if you're a fan of the book and shows feel free to listen 
Thanks again for stopping by the Real Spotlight. And until next time, peace out.